Joshua chapter 9, verse 3. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskids worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and to all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lives in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go and meet with them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day that we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So the background in this story is that God had commanded Joshua to drive out the inhabitants of the land of Canaan that he had previously promised to Abraham, who would give the land to his son Isaac, who would then give the land to his son Jacob. And God changed Jacob's name to Israel in Genesis 32:29. So Jacob and his family ended up in Egypt because of a severe famine, and they stayed there several hundred years, many of those years, in slavery. God sent Moses to deliver them out of the land of Egypt and bring them back to the land that he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses led them to the land and died before he entered it. Joshua took over for Moses and led the nation Israel and began to drive out the inhabitants of the land, mainly by killing most of them. Exodus 3.17, where the Israelites were still in Egypt in bondage, it says, And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. In Exodus 23.23, When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will blot them out. And we need to know that Israel is the only piece of real estate on planet Earth that God has declared to be his land. In Leviticus 25, 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. It's God's land. It's God's battle plan. He's the one that's leading them into the land, and he's the one that's bringing about the victory. Now, way back in the book of Genesis, hundreds of years before this time, God spoke to Abram before he changed his name to Abraham about the plan for Abraham's descendants possessing the land. It says in Genesis 15, 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And that's referring to the slavery in Egypt. Verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation whom they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. That happened. Read Exodus chapter 12 and focus on verse 36. Verse 15, As for you, you shall go back to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. Talking to Abraham again. 
and they shall come back here, that's the land of Canaan, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So in this day, the land of Canaan, which God promised to Israel, was referred to as the land of the Amorite. That's one of the names or one of the ways it was referred to. So if someone asks the question, why all the killing? Because as you go through, it's like they killed all these people. They slaughtered them. There's a great slaughter, all that. The answer is God gave the inhabitants of the land 400 years to repent, but they didn't while Israel was in Egypt. So he, God, pronounced judgment upon them. The Israelites didn't just kill all these people for no reason. God commanded them to do so, so he could establish his people in the land that he promised them. And the Israelites had to follow God's commandment to enter, reside, and remain in the land. And God is going before them and preparing the battle by striking fear into the hearts of the inhabitants. So Joshua gets all this. It's God's command, it's Israel's responsibility to obey, and God's going to make it happen. So they go forth and they begin to conquer the land. Now they are visited by a delegation of people who lived in that area, and they pretended to be from out of the area, and they lied about who they were. They say that they have heard all the things that God has done in Egypt. So what they're implying is they want to honor the God of Israel, but really they were desperately trying to save their lives and their community. So Joshua questions them, but he didn't inquire of the Lord. If Joshua would have inquired of the Lord, he would have discovered these people were lying to them, and he would have dealt with them accordingly. Instead, Joshua makes a critical mistake, one that I have made several times throughout my life with Jesus. I leaned on my own understanding and made these poor decisions with my limited perspective, when I could have prayed about it and got an answer from the Lord and avoided a landmine. So in Joshua 9.15 it says, And Joshua made peace with him and He made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So it's one thing to make peace with somebody, basically saying, yeah, you're not my enemy anymore, we're good. But when you make a covenant, that's another story. The covenant was their way of creating a contract between the two parties, and they took this very seriously. The covenants of these times, they had stipulations built in, and both parties would know exactly what to expect, exactly how to behave, and the consequences for not doing it. And this will come back and bite the Israelites as the Gibeonites were now bound to the Israelites through this covenant. And soon after, Gibeon is attacked by the armies of the people Joshua was commanded to destroy. And Joshua has to rescue them because of this commandment. And there are many stories in the scriptures where people jump the gun to delve into a situation where they could have had a much better ending if they would have inquired of the Lord. It's one of the lessons that we learn about being a believer is seek the Lord first. And as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see how many times God allowed Israel to fall flat on their faces because they didn't inquire of him. Rather, they went off and leaned on their own understanding, and then the situation blew up. After the book of Joshua comes the book of Judges, and the theme of that book is, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You see that phrase repeated throughout the book. The book of Judges was very illuminating for me to read as a new believer, because the consistent rebellion of Israel and their refusal to obey the Lord spoke to me. It's a perfect picture of our flesh versus the Spirit. God wants us to stay in tune with his will, and we want to do whatever makes us happy, and the two don't go together. Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And this is the history of so many in our world. Live according to your own flesh, and your relationship with God dies. Live according to God's Spirit, and then you'll become a child of God. In Matthew 7, when Jesus says there's only a few who will actually find life, I think he's talking about this issue specifically. Many churchgoers are doing exactly what Joshua did in this story, and that's how they live their lives. They don't seek God, and when this becomes habitual, they don't see any victory in God. 
this is totally evident when some high-profile Christian renounces his or her faith. They can't just go on thinking that God is who the Bible says he is because they can't understand why God won't answer their prayers or bless them. Why are all these bad things happening and all these excuses that they give for denouncing their faith? And the fact of the matter is, if they would stop living in the flesh and leaning on their own understanding, rather genuinely trusting in him and in all their ways acknowledging him, he will make their paths straight. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 then things would change. But they rely on their own mind to comprehend the will of God or the existence of God, which leaves them limited to the natural realm without any communication with God. And no wonder they don't believe. Understanding the supernatural God based on our own finite minds and our feelings, trying to comprehend what we see in life without being connected to the supernatural God that created everything, it doesn't work. Because our relationship with God is based on faith, not what we see, rather what we can't see but realize is there. It's like saying, I have renounced my belief in software because I can't see it. The evidence is there. If I download software, I got the program. But I can't see, hear, touch, smell, or taste the software traveling through the air. But we know it's there because once it's downloaded, I can open the program and start using it or the app. Now, if a person had only one experience in their life with downloading software and then moved to a remote place where there was no computers, and the entire population of that place didn't know anything about computers, that person could not deny that at one point they had experienced a software download. But when everyone begins mocking them of the notion of something invisible traveling through the air and making something on a little box that you can see, that person will likely stop talking about it, and the devil can begin convincing him that the opposition is correct. Look up Stockholm Syndrome, the city Stockholm. There's a syndrome named after it, after an event that happened there a long time ago. Basically, when people are held captive, they can become convinced that their captors are right in their cause and denounce their own beliefs. This is exactly what the devil has done with all those minds he has blinded. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, In their case, the God of this world, or the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when a high-profile Christian claims they're no longer a believer, it's obvious to me they either never really believed in the first place, they just did the church thing like so many people do, or the devil has convinced them that his way is the right way and God's way is a lie, just like he did in the garden, casting doubt upon God. And it worked. So trusting in God, relying not on our own understanding, rather running things by him first before we pull the trigger, that's critical. And that begins with simple faith. In Romans ten seventeen. faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That hearing is not hearing it from some person necessarily. It's hearing God speaking to us in that still small voice calling to us. From there, we trust him, read his word, obey his commands, and then indeed he will make our paths straight. Thank you.